Welcome to Stories for Change, an offshoot of Stories with Sapphire, where I share stories that pertain to important current events that may not give you the fun, spooky chills you're used to, but are nonetheless still horrifying. On May 25th, 2022, Fernando Marcos Jr., or Bong Bong Marcos, was elected president of the Philippines. He is the son of Fernando Marcos Sr., who ran a brutal 20-year dictatorship. Matsi Doppel, host of the Hainai podcast, messaged me asking if I had any interest in talking about the Marcos regime on my show. So in this bonus episode, Matsi briefly goes over the terrors of martial law and the notorious legacy of the Marcoses, and fellow podcaster Philippine Campfire Stories shares the tragic true story behind the Manila Film Center. I just messaged out of curiosity, like, oh, what do you think of, like, what's going on? Because it was the big thing, right? Everyone in my circle was talking about it, and especially in podcast horror circles in the Philippines, because, like, a lot of horror stories are basically tied to the Marcos regime. So we were like, oh, I was... This is Matsi, a fellow pan-Filipino podcaster and 2D animator. We connected when I interviewed her for my podcast. Yeah, um, I lived in the Philippines until September 2018. So most of my life, um, I've been here in Toronto, Canada for a little while already. But since part of that was in the pandemic, I was basically still like mentally in the Philippines and a little bit to this day. All my family and friends are all there. So a lot of like the stuff is still, you know, relevant to me, even if I get like the news like 12 hours late or like in the evening or something. You grow up learning about these things. You grow up learning about the Marcos regime. You learn, you learn about the martial law and everything. And I'm, I was surprised to learn that apparently there has been an active effort to kind of erase that learning in other places. And that's why I was like, how does how do the people not know this? Then I found out, well, the reason is they wanted them to not know this, but it can't get silent, especially now in, on the internet. So Ferdinand Marcos Sr. was elected president of the Philippines in 1965, running on the campaign slogan, This Nation Can Be Great Again. Sounds familiar? In 1972, a year before his second term was coming to an end, he imposed martial law. Endless human rights violations were committed. Corruption was the norm. And due to censorship and misinformation campaigns, the horrors of this era were slowly fading from memory. Which is why Motsi added a new segment to her podcast to make sure no one ever forgets the truth. Recently, I started this segment on the Hainai podcast at the beginning called the martial law and the crimes of the Marcos family. And it's just like a short two minute segment of like things that they did. And I'm not going to run out of any, I'm not going to run out of like material because if I just have to take one at a time, it'll take me years to like finish it all off. But the best like source, um, reliable source, I guess, for all of it is the Encyclopedia Britannica, which we all know is mostly infallible. You know, like nothing is 100% infallible. But the Britannica is very interested in facts-based reporting. And they basically described the Marcus regime as an authoritarian regime. Um, It was very much um, full of not only like torture, 
but it was also a, a kleptocracy, which is that they stole a lot of money, essentially, in that regime. And there's a lot of records of this. There was an entire government body that was created after the regime to collect on all of the stolen money. Although it did not get to all of it, it did get to a good chunk. And with the money that was remaining, that's how they were able to essentially pay to do what they want. Like all, all that money is the reason that they were able to kind of slither their way back into Philippine politics and all that. A lot of disappearances happened at that time. And there were a lot of people, yeah, who just dis straight up disappeared. And um, including uh, many students, many like activists and everything. The really interesting thing is a lot of people believe a lot of lies about the Marcos era. Like they believe that it was very flourishing. And you know how when somebody spends like hundreds and hundreds of dollars on like maybe a nice dinner and then they just run away and leave you with a bill? That's that's kind of how they quote unquote flourished. They just like essentially spent and stole a lot of money on thing. Half the things were useful. The other half were very much just what do they call it? Like white elephants or something. They called it essentially useless and not worth the amount of money they spent to make it. The general idea is that a lot of like taxpayer money was stolen. There was a specific one that I know of, which was a scandal with the Japanese reparations, which they nicknamed the Marukosugiwaku, which is basically just the Marcos scandal, in which a lot of like, I think 50 million pesos in Japanese reparations were essentially stolen. Um, I think a lot of it was they would fund like projects, quote unquote, but then the budgets would skyrocket. And yeah, it's a very common tactic. Like they would do a project and then it turns out a lot of the money for that project seems to have gone nowhere. And um, there's something called the Nutribun. And it's like you'll find this word when you start looking into like Marcos era, you will find this word called Nutribun. And the thing about the Nutribun is that um, one of the lies that they're telling right now is that the Marcos regime essentially like, oh, fed the poor with something called the Nutribun. But the reality is they were like essentially spending a lot of money on themselves while people were starving, so much so that American soldiers had to come in and like provide the Nutribuns. And they did that thing where they stamped their name on it just to make it seem like they're the ones giving it away. And they're still doing it to today. There are records of this. It's called The Conjugal Dictatorship, and it is a very well-known, well-regarded book. It was written by somebody who was like basically working for the Marcos dictatorship for a long time. He saw all of the corruption, and he basically outed it. Like He's a whistleblower. He outed it. And the sad part about that is that um, because he, he like outed all the details of this dictatorship, his son was like tortured and killed. And he disappeared. Like, he disappeared a, a little while back. Like, they don't know whatever happened to him. But obviously, it's, like, basically heavily implied that he was um, tortured and killed, just like his son. So his name is Primitivo Mijares. Um, I'm not 100% sure where it's available right now, but it is, like, one of the primary sources of all of the things that were going on. And it was even published, like, in the middle of the Marcos Martial Law. So, I mean, 10 years after it, Martial Law was established. So it was still very early on. I mean, not early on in the actual, like, presidency, but early on in terms of, like, public memory, in terms of history. And it was the source of a lot of people's like um, knowledge of what was going on in martial law behind the scenes. 
as horror podcasters, like you kind of get a lot of this knowledge because a lot of the horror stories in the Philippines like are very tied to major like traumatic experiences. So that's World War Two, martial law. <laughs> and those are where like all of the biggest like urban legends come from and um, that aren't like folkloric. And uh, obviously the most famous one is the, the Manila Film Center. Before we talk about the Manila Film Center, we have to talk about Imelda Marcos. Um, Imelda Marcos is the wife of Ferdinand Marcos Sr. And the dictatorship was referred to as a conjugal dictatorship because even though she essentially played the part of pretending she didn't really know what was going on, it was very clear that she was like an invaluable part of the machine. She would um, fund the arts, quote unquote, And her super lavish lifestyle was so well known that it became kind of like the meme of that era. Like her shoes became a meme, her thousands of shoes. But in that way, it was kind of like, it was kind of representative of what was the problem with Imelda, which is that she was spending like basically frivolously, even as like famine was like gripping the Philippines. And now, here is Earl from the Philippine Campfire Stories podcast to share the story of the Manila Film Center tragedy. Imelda wanted an Asian counterpart of the Cannes Film Festival of France. She moved that way. She wanted something. She made sure it all happens, at whatever cost. The budget for a supposedly new wing of the Philippine General Hospital was allocated instead to Imelda's new art center. According to Esquire magazine, the grand lobby of the building was supposed to take six weeks to finish, but 1,000 workers finished the entire center in 72 hours, a disaster waiting to happen. The scaffolding on the fourth floor fell on the unholy hour of 3 in the morning on November 17, 1981, trapping workers in the quick-drying cement. The trouble began when each floor was poured with quick-drying cement without waiting for the layers to dry. Too much was spilled due to the rush and the long hours of working, resulting in the tragedy. Videos were captured. Clips of men being half-buried. Some of them were barely alive. There was a media embargo to prevent a scandal from arising from the disaster. The site was only open to responders for nine hours following the disaster. At that point, at least 168 workers had already been killed or been buried in the hardened cement. But Imelda's show had to go on. The reconstruction went on and any of the bodies or the body parts left were built over and covered. The Manila Film Center had a few years of success during its early years. But due to the building's dark past, it remains, up to this day, empty and haunted. I just hope and pray that with the resurgence of the Marxist power, no Filipino lives will be wasted again just to get their way in preserving their seat. However, I'm afraid it's already too late. The numbers are still argued over to this day. The smallest number is seven people died, and the largest number is 169 people died. And but if you look, I did some research, and there was like a newspaper from 1980s, I believe, way back when, like print newspaper, that had the number at around 30, 20 something to 30 people died. 
And it makes sense because, like, the actual numbers, like the 169, might have come from the fact that there were a- around that number of people working on working in that shift. And obviously, not all of them died. But even if the numbers are kind of argued over, what is not argued over is the fact that as soon as this accident happened, there was a nine-hour media blackout. And in that nine hours, rescuers were not allowed onto the site. Like, essentially, even if, let's say it was, quote-unquote, just seven people, the fact is they made sure that people could not be rescued for nine whole hours just so they could figure out how to spin this. And that was basically like part that was like part and parcel of like the Marcos regime. Like they not only blacked out the media, they a lot of people died in that regime and they cared more about their image. And um, some of these stories even come all the way from like not just they're not like inventions of the Internet. These are literally like told by people who were there. And one of the most like um, well-known sources of this story is national artist of film in the Philippines, Lino Broca. Um, Lino Broca was very well known at the time. He was a filmmaker. He's one of the like most well-respected national artists of the Philippines. And there was a clip going around just a couple of days ago, like on Facebook, of a documentary about him from like decades ago. And he was telling the story of the Manila Film Center. He was talking about how he remembers a friend of his telling him about like how people's limbs were being cut off at the Manila Film Center tragedy. And there's also like um, a clip that was going around of him saying essentially that people were too kind to the Marcuses. And he literally says, they should have they should have been killed. So, yeah, like uh, like it's it's kind of like people are treating it like it's invented. But really, like these were stories that have been coming since the era just a quick rundown of another horror story was the San Juanico Bridge. And this was one of the Marcus's white elephants, which was like a bridge that was more expensive to make than was worth it at the time. Like nowadays, it's like more in use, which is nice. But back then, it was not like justified. And the money that they used to make it was the money that was embroiled in the Japanese like ODA, like the scandal. So it's all connected. And um, one of the horror stories of that bridge is that apparently um, in building the bridge, they supposedly sacrificed a bunch of like children. (laughs) They used children's blood to build this bridge. And obviously that's a little bit like far fetched. But um, supposedly there were reports of children going missing in that area which is why the story became a thing. The truth is a little, like, scarier <laughs> than the story when you really think about it. it. This one is, like, really difficult to talk about because it's kind of tied to a long history of conflict with Muslim Filipinos. The Philippines is a very Catholic country, except in the South, there is, like, essentially, like, a huge population of Muslim Filipinos. And obviously, there's like, going to be, like, a lot of... um conflict there just from a religious standpoint um but on the other hand there's also a lot of like we were basically taught in school about a lot of um conflicts with militant muslim groups and obviously like growing up in like the early 2000s that became like tied into like all other like anti-muslim rhetoric and everything but then i found out why there was conflict and it turns out it was again the marcus era (laughs) um there was something called the jabida massacre there were a lot of conflict 
over the Sabah Islands, I believe. It was basically like a territorial zone that is in conflict between uh, some different Southeast Asian countries, including the Philippines and I believe Malaysia and... I might be missing some other ones, but yeah, it's one of those like people have kind of been arguing over who owns it for the longest time. And apparently there were these Filipinos, the Muslim Filipinos, who were brought in to this island called Corredor, Corredor Island, and they were told that they were going to defend their country. You know, all the things that soldiers are told, like they were going to be do a good thing, they were going to make sure that everyone was safe. But then it turns out what the actual plan was by the Marcos presidency was that they would be sent to fight over Sabah with other Southeast Asian Muslims. And when they found that out, the story goes is that they, uh, what do you call it, like they were really bothered obviously they're really bothered by that on top of that there was supposedly like their food and rations were starting to run low as well um and they weren't being given clear orders and so in the end like a lot of people who were like protesting what was going on like people in that group started to question things and once they started questioning things they were essentially all massacred like the upper upper management like the people in charge essentially were ordered to to kill all of them and the only reason we know about it is because one of the soldiers escaped by jumping into the water and swimming to safety and he was rescued and he basically told his story and yeah a lot like to this day if you go to Corredor Island there are names of the people who were killed in the massacre in the old ruins that are there and After that happened, it sparked like the biggest essentially conflict between the Philippine government and southern Muslim Filipinos. And it took a very long time for people to kind of acknowledge that it even happened. And it was only acknowledged by President Noynoy Aquino when he took the presidency um, very recently, like only a couple of years ago. But the fact is, like, you know, they have extensive records that this happened. And a lot of people kind of just pretend it didn't happen. You know, so it's 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 another one of those where it's like you kind of get answers to a lot of questions like, why do we have like conflict with Muslim Filipinos? Oh, it's Marcos era. The answer is so often the Marcoses. And I'm just like, hmm, I'm tired. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let's just say like a lot of the big problems the Philippines is facing today, including like poverty, the national debt, um, a lot of like all that. If you're wondering where it came from. The answer is more often than you'd think, the Marcuses. <laughs> so even after all the documented crimes during this period, how was the son of a dictator elected in the year 2022? Um, so, so we call him, his, his nickname is Bongbong. So Bongbong Marcos is the son of Ferdinand Marcos Sr. And he essentially yeah, won the presidency through various reasons, um, but the most pressing of which was a, lo- a really extensive misinformation campaign. Like, a, lo- a lot of lies about their family has have been spread over the course of, like, many years. And unfortunately, um, despite, like, education about it, despite all of the historical, like, reminders, um, despite there being a whole holiday about it, a lot of people were taken by those lies. They did it on TikTok, and TikTok is like now it joins the uh, list of social media that help fascism in the modern day. So, other than Facebook, 
Um, but yeah, that's a lot of it. Like there is also like recently, I mean, not recently during the elections, everyone was talking about it, but very recently they confirmed that by world standards, by like, um, anti-corruption standards, the, this election was also very dirty. They counted like, and I remember this, 1,800 voting machines had failed throughout the day including the one that my sister she like waited from 6 a.m to 10 p.m to vote because the voting machines just weren't working and 1,800 machines like in any other circumstances that would be like a big sign but unfortunately it seems like also the commission on elections seems to be very corrupt um i i won't say like i know 100 percent they're corrupt but the fact that they didn't acknowledge like the 1800 broken machines or the fact that um apparently the previous elections had lock boxes and this time they had shoe boxes for the receipts of, of voting a lot of people were like encouraged slash threatened to like leave their receipts with the people on on at the site even though they didn't want to because they just didn't trust it and yeah a lot of like really really questionable things happened plus six deaths people got shot during the elections by all accounts this was a dirty election and a lot of people are trying to fight it like current like it's so it's difficult as a layman or like as just as a civilian to kind of wait wait it out but there are like you know lawyers there are people who are essentially drafting everything that they need to draft just to be able to kind of fight this and on my end i voted here in toronto I can't say for like this one is just if this happened to like way more people, I would say, wow, this is this is like some kind of voter fraud thing. But my my ballot didn't even get to me. I had to go to the consulate general just to vote, which is fine for me because I'm like literally in the city. But for a lot of people, like that was a whole other problem. It like there is a distinct possibility that Bong Bong still could have won if it was a fair election. But it was not a fair election. <laughs> and so either way, it's like, hmm, we have to like really look into it. And um, we don't know what will happen. We don't know exactly what will happen. And we don't know how much the powers that be are interested in seeing justice. Many of them are not. But we're hoping for the best. And on the bright side, the thing that has kept us all from like falling into despair is that his opponent, um, Lenny Robredo, was his presidential opponent. She's the current vice president of the Philippines, but she's stepping down. She's converting her vice presidential um, group called Angat Buhay, a wide-ranging anti-poverty measure where she and her team would visit like different, very far-flung areas of the Philippines and make sure on multiple levels kind of to make sure that they are well-fed they're like clothed they're educated like every like all of the aspects that would essentially help them to run you know um and she's turning that into a non-government um organization after she steps down from the vice presidency and it will be the largest because like because of her campaign and because she had like millions and millions of supporters her group becoming an ngo or non-government organization means that every one of those millions will be on site. So that's kind of like the hopeful part of all this. And the other hopeful part is that they will just not let the, you know, let this like fraud election go without a fight. So we're hoping for that. 
There's obviously so much left to cover, but I hope that this inspires you to learn more about the Marcos regime. Some recommendations are The Conjugal Dictatorship by Primitivo Mahares and The Kingmaker, streaming on Hulu. Fun fact, someone who hates the Marcoses perhaps more than many Filipinos is George Harrison of the Beatles. (laughs) There's a clip going around of essentially him cussing out the Marcoses because the Beatles went to the Philippines during the Marcos era and they were essentially like quote-unquote invited and by invited you know like forced they were told to like go to the palace like the Malacanang palace just to perform for the Marcoses by Imelda and they didn't do it because you know (laughs) they're the Beatles and it's like it wasn't planned it wasn't like actually part of their whole thing and essentially their controlled media pushed the idea that the Beatles snubbed them (laughs) <laughs> and so the Beatles were literally like they were, their lives were threatened as they tried to get out of the Philippines. And yeah, ever since then, like the Beatles have never come back to the Philippines. And the reason is the Marcuses. <laughs> it's really tough because a lot of people just refuse to like listen to reason and like will call anything fake news, even Encyclopedia Britannica, if it's like against their like their leader. <laughs> I, th- I think like a lot of people did not get the full extent of like how badly the Marcoses have like messed up real information because you know before we were like oh you know I'm sure everyone knows that the Marcoses are like this bad and we can't get too crazy about it and then now we're like nope <laughs> no they didn't know and now we have to be very loud about it. Stories with Sapphire is created by me, Sapphire Sandalo. Special thanks to Motsi and Earl. Be sure to check out their podcasts, High Nai Podcast and Philippine Campfire Stories. <laughs>